This evening, I uh, would like to introduce a uh, topic that uh, I've been uh, working on with a uh, psychiatrist uh, colleague of mine, Dr. Catherine Ducommonage. The topic is uh, dependent arising of the self in terms of relations with others. And uh, we uh, collaborated on this as an experiment to see how uh, we could uh, mutually, you know, our two disciplines, Buddhism and contextual therapy, could uh, supplement each other. Uh, Because uh, the traditional Buddhist teachings uh, speak in terms of uh, how we can best relate to others with compassion, understanding, kindness, etc. But uh, it doesn't usually uh, address the dynamics of relationships based on these uh, general guidelines. And contextual therapy uh, speaks a lot about this, but uh, uh, Buddhism can add much more depth in terms of uh, the uh, uh, actuality of uh, the self and others. Uh, To give you a little bit of a background, contextual therapy was uh, founded by, again, an unpronounceable name, Ivan Bozermeninaj. He was one of the uh, pioneers and founders of family therapy, Uh, Family therapy uh, uh, departed from uh, general individual psychotherapy by uh, saying that our behavior doesn't just uh, depend on our own individual characteristics, but also uh, the dynamics that are established uh, between us and the various systems that we interact in, like family, for example. And then uh, contextual therapy uh, adds onto this a... uh, Uh, the ethical dimension of our relationships between each other, and also a dialectic view of the self based on the works of uh, Martin Buber, I and Thou. And uh, this is of particular interest, especially to, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, because uh, that whole establishment of self and non-self, me and you, this is uh, something that uh, is very delicate. So, in order to see how the two systems can uh, supplement each other, uh, first thing that comes to mind is that uh, Buddhism has a very specific uh, definition or treatment of the self. So, if we're going to speak about the relationship between me and you, these are two selves, then uh, this needs to be within the context of the Buddhist understanding of what the self is. Uh, Buddhism does assert a self, And uh, this is known as uh, the conventionally existent self. And that is just the person, who we are, what we refer to as me. So our most usual, common, everyday uh, way of referring to ourselves, and that is the conventional convention, we all agree on it, uh, me. And this is the agent of actions and the one that experiences its effects. I bang my foot on the table and I experience the pain. I mean, this is me, isn't it? So just as there's a conventionally existent me, there's also a conventionally existent you. And the two of them enter into a conventionally existent relationship. Whether it's partners marriage partners, mother and uh, child, friends, whatever. We have, everybody has relationships with uh, other people. 
and me, you, and our relationship are all established in dependence on many, many other factors, causes, conditions, aspects of ourselves, and so on. Uh, It also depends on the concept of a relationship. So in uh, the Buddhist jargon, this is known as dependent arising. Things arise or happen dependent on many, many other factors. This is one of the most basic uh, uh, Buddhist principles that uh, everything is interdependent. We speak about very, very large systems in which everything depends on, relates to, and is interrelated in some way or another with everything else. Very holistic view of reality. This is uh, one of the things that these two systems have in common, Buddhism and contextual therapy, that they're both uh, holistic systems. Uh, But when you say holistic, then you have to include everything, and there are some things that are included in the Buddhist side and some things included on the contextual therapy side, and this is where they can uh, mutually uh, benefit each other by adding more and more elements into the mixture of uh, uh, the holistically related uh, psychology. In uh, Buddhism, we have a very specific definition of the self, conventionally existent self, and Uh, a self that lacks any of these factors in the definition, that's known as the false self. In other words, there is the uh, self that corresponds to reality, and there is an imagined self that uh, we tend to identify with. We believe that this is how we exist, like, for instance, being the center of the universe, the one that's the most important that everybody should pay attention to, uh, etc., and that doesn't correspond to reality. And the main thrust in Buddhism is to uh, deflate that false me, to understand that it doesn't correspond to reality, and that absence of anything in reality that corresponds to our crazy imagination, that absence is known in Buddhist jargon as emptiness or voidness. But uh, when we believe that we exist as this uh, false me, the way that this manifests is insecurity. Like, for instance, if we think, I, everybody should love me, everybody should pay attention to me, I'm so important, then, of course, we feel insecure about that. And we try to make that false me secure, which is, of course, a futile attempt. It can't be made secure because it doesn't exist doesn't correspond to reality. So we have all sorts of mechanisms to try to make that uh, self-secure, that false me, which of course always fail. These are known as the disturbing emotions. So we post all sorts of pictures on uh, social media and uh, write all sorts of things about what we've been doing in order to get more and more likes more and more people like me, that should make me feel secure. But of course, we never feel secure. There's never enough likes. And uh, then we get angry when uh, people don't like us, say something nasty to us, make a nasty comment. If we can just delete all of that, that should make me secure. But it doesn't. Or we uh, uh, put up walls around us. You know, Uh, if I ignore things that I don't like, maybe that'll make me uh, secure. But, of course, we're still left with paranoia. 
So all of that leads to compulsive behavior, like constantly checking our phones for more messages and more likes, and that leads to more problems, more unhappiness. So what uh, we try to do in the Buddhist training is to realize that this type of me, the one that everybody should like, that's a myth, that's impossible. Not everybody liked Buddha, why should they like me? They crucified Jesus, what do I expect from me? So if we can stop believing that we exist in this uh, impossible way, then we can uh, start to uh, work with how we actually do exist. And that's very much true in terms of our relationships with uh, uh, somebody else. The way that you exist, same. It's not uh, like this myth that you are the perfect partner, you know, the prince or the princess on the white horse. This is absurd. Nobody is perfect. And we will live happily ever after for the rest of our lives. That's a fairy tale. That's not real life, is it? And the problem is that we are looking for it and it doesn't work with this person, so then we try it with somebody else. Maybe it will work with them. But uh, it's doomed to failure because it's impossible. It's not based on reality. So how does uh, the conventional self uh, exist? What are we talking about in Buddhism? Conventional me, the conventional you. Buddhism always speaks in terms of our moment-to-moment experience. This is what's actually happening. The only thing that's happening is right now, what I'm experiencing, what you're experiencing. So if we analyze what is the self, we're speaking in terms of what is the self in each moment of our experience, each moment of our lives. And each moment of our experience is made up of many, many parts. So in each moment we have perception from all of our senses, we have thought, we have emotions, we have some feeling of happiness or unhappiness, many, many parts. All of these are going on at the same time, aren't they? Emotion, understanding, feeling unhappy, seeing things, hearing things, all of that's going on at the same time, isn't it? And the self, me, the person, is an imputation on all of that. This is a very specific Buddhist technical term. I'll explain it. And I think a very good example of an imputation is a football game. What is a football game? Well, actually, you have uh, a lot of players, and they're running around and doing things all the time. And you have teams, and you have a score, and you have rules and you have a ball, and you have a field, what's the football game? Football game is an imputation on all of that. That's what a football game is, isn't it? A football game isn't any one of those, is it? It's not just people running around. And there's no football game without all of these parts, all of these things, is there? There's no football game if there's no football. And... All that's happening is one moment at a time, isn't it? The whole game doesn't happen in one moment. But in each moment, we say, I'm watching a football game. What are you watching? You're watching some people run around in a field, kicking a ball, following some rules. So 
Are we watching a football game? Yes, that's a convention. It's an imputation on what's happening moment to moment to moment to moment with all these parts changing all the time. So the self is like that. We have all these parts, the emotions, the perceptions, happy and unhappy, the intelligence, the thoughts, all of those are only happening moment to moment and they're all changing all the time. And the self is like the football game, isn't it? That's me. Now I'm sitting here, now I'm talking, now I'm drinking a glass of water. It's me, like each moment watching the football game. Is that all of me, my entire life? No, there's only one moment at a time. So, as a convention, we refer to this <laughs> enormous amount of things that are going on and changing in each moment as me. So, just as all the parts of what's happening in the football game change, so now the game has changed, it grows, same thing with the self. All these different parts, the emotions, the thoughts, the experiences, and so on, that's changing all the time. So likewise, the self is changing all the time. So a football game doesn't change into another football game, does it? It retains its identity, even though the score changes all along the uh, game. Likewise, as I grow up, I don't change into another person. I'm still me, but this is very dynamic. It grows. This is how we grow as a person, through our experiences. I mean, that's just common sense, isn't it? So how I grow as a person and how you grow as a person and how our relationship grows over time, all of that is dependent on many, many factors, many variables. That's called dependent arising. That's the reality. So Buddhism has a lot to say about dependent arising. This is the area in which uh, contextual therapy can fit very nicely. So first we have, there are three types of uh, dependent arising. There's causal dependence, that uh, things that change, changing phenomenon, arise dependently on appropriate causes and conditions. A plant will grow dependent on soil and a seed and water and sunlight, etc. Cause and effect. Hmm. Then there's mutual dependence. Uh, this refers to the fact that phenomenon arise dependently on being in relation to something else. Like a whole and parts. You can't have a whole without parts. You can't have parts without being parts of a whole. Or parent and child can't have one without the other. They arise simultaneously dependent relative to each other. Or football and the game of football. Can't have a football if there were no such thing as a game of football. Or things like short and long, they're relative to each other. And another variant of uh, mutual dependence is imputation and the basis for imputation. So you can't have a football game without there being rules and a football and players and people running around and kicking. So these two are arise dependent on each other. People running around kicking a ball would not be football if there weren't such a thing as rules in a game of football. They would just be people kicking a ball. 
They wouldn't be playing football, would they? This is the area where contextual therapy comes in. One of the uh, points that contextual therapy makes coming from uh, Buber is that there can't be a me without a you. That these two arise dependently on each other. But we'll get into that. And then the third type of dependent arising is dependent arising in terms of what's called mere designation by names and labeling by concepts. Designation by names and labeling by concepts. So, for instance, here's an object. You can imagine an object here. Uh, A ball. Well, it's only a football if you have the concept and the name football. Otherwise, it's just an object, isn't it? So it arises as a football dependent on a concept of a football and the word football. But even then, it's only a convention because what is called a football in America is not the same as what in Europe or Russia is called a football. It's a different shaped ball. So what is a football? It's dependent on your concept of what a football is and the word that you use for it. It's very subtle, but it's really very interesting when you start to look at it. We have a whole bunch of people, and we're all experiencing emotions all the time. And these emotions don't fit into boxes, do they? I mean, we're just feeling. But then some group of people came up with a concept and a word, love, and another word, like. So some feelings I have toward you is I like you, and another set of feelings is I love you. Now, what everybody feels is quite different, isn't it? But still, we have these general categories, I like you, I love you. And we all have our own concepts of what that means. And how do you draw the boundary between when I like you and I love you? Actually, that occurs differently in each relationship, isn't it? So do we experience love? Yes. Conventionally, it's a convention. We have agreed on what that word means, and it refers to certain feelings. That's this type of dependent arising. So how do these three types of dependent arising apply to the conventionally existent self? Remember, the self is occurring as an imputation in each moment on everything that we're experiencing. The football game of me lasts our whole life. So causal dependence refers to the fact that what we experience now is the continuity of what we experienced before. So in that stream of continuity, causal dependence is what I experienced in my childhood is going, or what I experienced yesterday is going to affect what I experience now. It's going to affect me. Because of everything I did in my life, now there's the experience of being here and giving this lecture. So everything, just as what I've experienced in the, fa- in the past affects what I experience now, what I, that affects me now. So in that way, the self grows in a very dynamic way throughout our life. Always changing, but not into something completely different. That's called a continuity, continuum. And mutual dependence means that uh, 
the, you know, I depend on what I experience. You know, the way what affects what I experience affects me. So me and the experience, what I experience, arise dependently on each other. Now I'm doing this. Now I'm eating that. Now I'm saying this. You know, you can't have uh, speaking without someone speaking. I mean, this is what I mean by mutual dependence. The me speaking and the speaking arise dependently on each other. So now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that. So what that implies is... What that implies is that the self has many, many parts. It's not monolithic. I'm a business person, I'm a family person, I'm a sports person. I have all these different aspects of my life. It's all me. And I have relationships and friendships with many, many different people. So in each of them, that's me, but not exactly the same, is it? So we have many, many parts, many facets to ourselves. And then dependent arising in terms of names and concepts, well, we have this concept, me. I mean, it's very interesting. You know, there's the self defined in Freud, self-defined in Jung, self-defined in Buddhism, self-defined in many, many systems. So what is the self? Well, it depends on the concept you have of the self, isn't it? Right? Like the football, <laughs> defined differently in America and in Europe. So the conclusion of this is that uh, from a Buddhist point of view, the reality of the self is that the self is not rigid. It's not a rigid entity sitting somewhere inside us. But it's changing all the time. It's affected by many, many, many variables. So if we have this dynamic understanding of me, then that also applies to the dynamic understanding of you and the dynamic understanding of our relationship. All of these, the three of them, are affected by many, many, many variables and changing in each moment. This is this holistic view that uh, we are uh, trying to describe. Very complex. So now we can look at relationships. And they, too, as I said, are not concrete, rigid entities. They also arise dependently on these three ways. So the first of these is causal dependency. Our relationship arose dependently on causes. We had to meet each other, and there had to be the circumstances under which we met. And, very importantly, there have to be circumstances that allow for the relationship to continue. Because, let's say, the two of us move to two different parts of the world and lose contact with each other, there's no longer circumstances to sustain the relationship. Otherwise, the relationship doesn't grow. You have nothing in common. So there need to be causal factors that continue to uh, produce the, uh, you know, the continuity of the relationship, doing things together, etc. And also what's interesting causally is that our way, our way of relating to others is a continuity of the way that we've been relating to, to other people in the past. We have certain patterns of how we relate to someone, to others, and these also affect how we relate to a new person. 
You find this uh, when you're a parent, that uh, in situations in which, well, I don't know how to deal with this, and then you just repeat what your parents did for you, and you act the same way as your parents did. Then it becomes very surprising when you realize that. Then there are the uh, mutual dependency. The whole relates is dependent on the parts. So this is uh, uh, the various the relationship arises dependent on all the times we've spent together, the interests that we share, the activities that we share, all these parts that it depends on. And of course, the things that we share with one person, we don't necessarily share with somebody else. What you share with your, someone at work in your business is not the same as what you share with somebody at the gym or with your children. And then dependent arising in terms of concepts and names, that also has to do with uh, what our, the concept is of the relationship, what the concept is of you know, some, being married to somebody or just a partner or casual partner or part-time partner. What friend means or acquaintance. You know, all of the relationships that we have also arise dependently on what concepts we have for these types of relationships. So if uh, this understanding of uh, the self, me, you, and relationships comes from the Buddhist side and can supplement uh, the understanding of uh, the dynamics of relationships as is discussed in contextual therapy, then what can contextual therapy contribute to the Buddhist understanding? Uh, Contextual therapy speaks of five dimensions of relational reality. These are five sets of variables that affect the people in a relationship and a relationship. So they add uh, further material in this general category of dependent arising. So first we have the dimension of factual variables. These refer to the given facts in the lives of the two persons in a relationship. In other words, their factual profile. That's going to affect not only them, but the relationship. So this refers to the sex of the persons, their age. Are they in good health? Are they in bad health? Is there a huge age difference? Do they have disabilities? Disabil- are they handicapped? Are they crippled? In a wheelchair? Blind? Their couple status. Are they single? Are they in a committed relationship? Are they married? Divorced? Do they have children? I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced this. We have a good friend, and then that friend falls in love with somebody else, and then we don't see that friend very often. And then they get married and they have a child, and you see them even less. So that very much affects the relationship. The language is spoken. Let's say if uh, the other person doesn't speak your language very well, they can't really express themselves, so that affects the relationship. Your economic situations. Someone has a lot of money able to go all sorts of places. The other person doesn't have money, so they can't go with them. And then geographic condition. You know, they can live in places that are very far away from each other or difficult to get to. So these are all the factual variables. And what's interesting is that in any specific relationship, these uh, factual variables will change. So when uh, my friend and I were children, we had a certain type of relationship, but as adults, we have a different type of relationship. 
And then one had, you know, got married and had children. The other stayed single. All these variables change over a lifetime of a relationship, don't they? And they affect the relationship. And that's happening in all our relationships throughout our life, not just one relationship. The second dimension is uh, psychological variables. So there can be uh, psychological uh, manifestations of mental illness, personality disorders, depression, anxiety, delusions, narcissism. You know, somebody, the relationship we have with somebody who has a very uh, uh, bad temper, gets angry all the time, be very different from uh, the relation we have with somebody who uh, is very, what should we say, non, uh, very um, relaxed. Then their cognitive abilities, so their ability to prob- solve problems, to remember things. They could have disorders, they could have dementia when they get very old. Their intellectual abilities, they could be very uh, limited or just average or gifted. That also will affect, the re- of the two people, will affect that relationship. Their sexual preferences, then their emotional factors described in Western systems, like uh, their level of emotional maturity. Are they extroverted, introverted, optimistic, pessimistic, rational, irrational, shy, anxious, nervous? And then we have emotional factors that are discussed in Buddhism, like their level of uh, compassion, kindness, generosity, patience, and negative factors like uh, aggressiveness, shyness, um, Um, selfishness, arrogance. So the self of, you know, the person, me and you, will be an imputation on all of these factors, both the factual ones and the psychological ones. There's a whole set in me, which is changing all the time, a whole set in you, changing all the time. And, of course, the relationship is going to be affected by the interaction of these it's very complex, it's different in each moment. The third dimension is systemic variables. This refers to the mode of transaction and communication that the people establish with each other. So this now is in the relationship. How do they communicate with each other? And the systems that they participate in and how these uh, systems influence their interactions. So... Their style of interaction could be a battle for power and control. Who's control? You know, who talks all the time? It could be childlike uh, interaction or adult-like interaction. Their style of communication. Some people are very expressive and talk about their feelings all the time. And others are very reserved and don't talk about their feelings at all. Then the family structure that they operate in and how that influences them. You know, their family structure could be that uh, uh, um, they uh, had a very dominant father or they have uh, uh, a, uh, um, a family with lots and lots of children, stuff like that. And uh, the children are not, uh, must obey the parent. This type of uh, structure that will affect how they interact with others and how they interact within the family. You know, like when you have uh, an older child has to take care of all the younger children, this type of family structure. Then the business business environment and the mode of interaction in that business, 
will affect how the people in, who work in that business interact with each other. And then the religious and belief context. In other words, the, what's called value ethics. If you uh, are living in a society with a religion that says the women can't go outside unaccompanied with, uh, by a man, well, that's going to very much affect your way of interacting with, with others. So these are the systemic variables that affect the relationship. Even when you visit another country that has a different system of uh, values, you have to adopt to that. In some countries, uh, men and women are not allowed to show, I mean, it's not proper to show affection to each other in public. Can't hold hands, for example. So that's going to affect how you deal with that will affect your relationship. And one person might go along with it and the other person say, this is stupid, and uh, protest. This will affect the relation, each moment of the relationship, you know, that part of it. Then the fourth dimension is relational ethics. This is different from value ethics. Value ethics were based on some religion, uh, whereas uh, this form of ethics is, is defined in terms of the direct impact of our behavior on others and an understanding of their realistic needs. So this deals with uh, the whole issue of fairness in a relationship and balance. So the balance of giving and receiving. One person in a relationship is always giving and the other person is a taker, always uh, receiving, never giving anything back. Or are they equal? And then the level of fairness in terms of uh, uh, things like expenses, the workload. Does one person have to do all the housework and the other person just sits and watches television? Uh, is one person always uh, paying and the other person just uh, go going along for a free ride? You know, how, how does it work? Is it fair? And do you consider it fair? Or is there resentment? And then there are loyalty conflicts that you have. Being loyal to, you know, your spouse or your parents. There can be a conflict in that. There can be a conflict when there's a divorce. Be loyal to this parent or that parent. And uh, um, it's not fair that you spend all your time with one. You should spend time with me. Uh, why don't you come visit me more? The parent, you know, the old parents, this type of... Uh, uh, concept of what is fair in terms of uh, who you're loyal with, who do you spend time with. So that's relational ethics. Then the fifth and last dimension is the one that's a little bit uh, complex, perhaps the most complex. Uh, in the original formulation of uh, these dimensions, it was called the ontic dimension, which is a very rare word in English. But uh, we came to an understanding, my colleague and I, to call it the dimension of relational self-other establishment. Mm -hmm. This is what derives from uh, an elaboration of uh, Martin Buber's ideas. Buber describes two types of uh, relationships, I-you, which he calls I-thou in English, and I-it. Uh, whereas Bozerman uh, uh, with contextual, contextual therapy, proposes uh, six modes of uh, relating. In other words, how do you establish a me, a sense of, not, not exactly a sense of a me, but an actual self? 
and uh, you establish a self in contrast to what is not the self. Uh, I suppose this deals very much with boundaries. You know, there's some people that don't know how to set boundaries between themselves and others very well. So, what are these six? The first one is called intrasubject contraposition. Uh, here you don't have an actual external or internal other. It's a, a contrast between self and self. Uh, you have this in uh, situations where uh, people cut themselves in order to feel something. So if they can feel pain, then they get a sense of feeling and then a sense of self. They establish their self in terms of that boundary of, of the pain. Or people talk to themselves. Or, and this we weren't uh, very sure of, but we're speculating on this, that uh, uh, when you define yourself in terms of a cause or a project or an ideology, right, or a religious figure like uh, a, uh, a Catholic nun marrying Jesus, and this gives me, you know, that person, uh, that's me. There's no actual external uh, other. I belong to this ideology, this cause. Dedicate myself to this cause. This gives, this makes me, me. Then there's, uh, the second one is an internal dialogue. Like uh, talking to a dead parent or a dead partner. And they talk back to you. You receive advice from them. Uh, playing chess with an imaginary opponent or in negotiating with your conscience. Should I do this? Should I do that? No, my conscience says you shouldn't do that. You're naughty, naughty. This type of internal dialogue. Then we have uh, the third type is merger, in which uh, the self and other merge into a we. And then that we transacts with a third party, either as the subject or an, abje or an object. You know, like a, a marriage in which you know the two act as uh, a unit and they say we want him to do that or he wants us to do that you're always thinking in terms of we not uh, individuals that becomes very interesting when one person in the relationship considers the uh, relationship as a we and the other person doesn't we don't do things like that what do you mean we don't do things <laughs> another variant of this is the relationship between a mother and an infant they're uh, they form a we. Then uh, the next one is being the subject. So this is where uh, we treat the other as an object. This is the I-it interaction. So this could be, for instance, the type of relation that you have with uh, the person at the checkout counter at the supermarket. That person is just an it to you, an object. You don't really care about their emotions, their feelings, what's happening at home. They're an it. Remember, this is how you establish or you believe that you establish me in relation to somebody else. And how do you establish that? Do you establish me with an it? Or do you establish me with a, in, a, in a merger? That's what we're talking about here. It's a variable. And it will change in any relationship over time, in each moment. 
And then uh, the next one is being the object. So that's the it, I. You consider yourself an it, like the secretary with the boss, or the cleaning lady with the, the, you know, the person in the house. You're an it. To the, and it's the other person that gives orders. That's, and then the last one is the true I-U dialogue, in which the self and the other have reversible positions. So here we have a two-way dialogue and interaction in which both sides are free of projections, preconceptions, and judgments about each other. They don't treat the other as an it. They just relate to the person as a person. This, of course, is ideal. So when we broaden the uh, Buddhist understanding of dependent arising beyond just causes and parts and uh, concepts, then we can add these uh, five dimensions. Some of them are already treated within Buddhism, but the ones specifically in terms of interaction uh, can supplement what is uh, described in the Buddhist teachings. So just as in uh, the Buddhist practice, we can deconstruct the false self into all the variables and so on that are affecting the conventionally existent self so that we can see that, uh, you know, there's too much of this or too little of that, and we can get some sort of balance so we uh, can uh, um, rid ourselves of what's causing problems. We can do the same with our relationships. And of course, we have many, many relationships, not just one. But if we can understand more and more of the variables that affect me, that affect each person that we relate to, relate with, and that affect each relationship, then we can see what isn't working, what are the difficult points, what would be the best way of making this work, and we can be very fluid and uh, lose rigidity in our relationships with others and make them as beneficial as possible to both parties. This weekend, what uh, I plan to do is apply this uh, five-dimensional uh, model to uh, analyzing three specific types of relationships that uh, uh, we establish in Buddhism and then how that affects our, relation, our personal relationships with others. So the first is, uh, as a Mahayana Buddhist practitioner, we are working to benefit all beings. That's everybody. So how do you relate to everybody, to all beings? What's the optimal way? What are the difficulties that come uh, you know, along in that process? And when you're trying to benefit everybody, well, what happens to your relationship with your children or your close friends? How does it affect that? What would be the best way of dealing that? What are the problems that come up? We don't have to be a Buddhist to experience this. Uh, there are many people who are involved with uh, uh, social work, wanting to uh, help everybody, but then they have no time for their family. And the family resents the time that they spend working with the public. The second relation that we'll look at is the relation with a spiritual teacher. If you have a very strong commitment to uh, your spiritual teacher, how does that conflict sometimes with your marriage commitments, for example? Your teacher is leading a meditation retreat. Do you go to that, but your partner wants you to go on holiday with them to the beach? 
big conflict. How do you handle that? And then in uh, tantra practice, you are imagining that you are already in the form of a Buddha to be able to practice uh, uh, like a rehearsal to acting that way. So what is your relation to that uh, image that you are trying to live up to and how does that affect your everyday relationships with people? So I think this uh, uh, system of these five dimensions of relational uh, um, relationships, relational reality, can be very helpful in indicating certain almost a therapeutic type of approach to dealing with these uh, types of problems that come in the relationships that you establish in Buddhist practice. So the longer article uh, upon which uh, my talks are based uh, is on my website, studybuddhism.com, in both English and Russian translation. The uh, link is there on the board. If you just go to studybuddhism.com and in the internal search engine, type a few words of the uh, name of the article, you'll, uh, uh, that page will come up on your screen. So we, mm-hmm. so we have a few minutes uh, left for questions. Speak into the microphone. Mindfulness, uh, there is the uh, popular form of this practice that has been uh, taught in uh, not only in the West but uh, in Asia as well. And there's the actual Buddhist practice of mindfulness. They're a bit different. Mindfulness, as it's taught uh, currently in uh, the modern world, is uh, primarily uh, a method of uh, be here now. Just uh, pay attention to uh, what we're experiencing uh, each moment. practice of mindfulness uh, is based on uh, the meaning of the word mindfulness. It's uh, in uh, the original languages. It's the same word as to uh, remember, to remember something. And so what uh, we try to do is always keep in our memory some understanding of something. We focus on something and focus on it with understanding and always remember that. So always recall that and not forget it. So we would uh, apply what we've been discussing here uh, in terms of uh, uh, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness to try to uh, understand and view our relationship and our interactions with others in terms of dependent arising on all these variables. 
And if we then apply that to the modern usage of uh, mindfulness, what we would do is in each moment of our interaction with somebody, try to remember all these variables that are going on and to notice, hey, now I'm treating you like an it. And then change that mode of interaction to you have feelings and emotions just as I do and you're a person, not just an it. So if we understand the variables that are affecting each moment of the here and now in our relationship, then we can uh, um, correct them when there are faults, when there are things that are causing problems. So the modern practice of mindfulness is very beneficial, very helpful, but uh, we should be aware that it's only the very first step in the full Buddhist practice of mindfulness. Is much, much more than that. Basically, in order to follow the uh, Buddhist methods, you already need to have a certain level of emotional maturity. If uh, uh, somebody is really um, very uh, disturbed, then going to a professional is really recommended first. Even in uh, Tibetan society, somebody who has you know, schizophrenia or something like that would uh, go to a uh, Tibetan doctor for medication rather than uh, uh, be taught meditation. But uh, if we have a certain level of emotional uh, maturity, then I think uh, the place that one has to start in our modern times is to quiet down because uh, our lives are so busy with uh, pressure, social networking, constantly checking the phone, uh, these sort of things that uh, unless we quiet down, there's no way of starting with any Buddhist practice. Quieting down, quieting the mind, putting away the phone. Definition. The Buddhist definition of love is the wish for others to be happy and to have the causes of happiness, and it, uh, regardless of uh, how they behave or how they treat me, and it includes the wish for me myself also be happy to be happy and to have the causes of happiness. So the self is not excluded from everybody. Uh, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, so I mean, I've certainly heard of cognitive therapy, but uh, I couldn't speak in depth about it. But uh, if, it, uh, if my understanding is incorrect, excuse me, but uh, if it has to deal with our attitudes towards, towards things, how we cognize them, then... Uh, Buddhism has a great deal to uh, uh, contribute in terms of how we change our attitudes from uh, uh, unconstructive ones or destructive ones to constructive ones. There's a whole category of uh, teachings called mind training that deal with this. We have time for maybe one last question. Um, 
to uh, psychotherapy? Uh, how long ago did it start and why did it start? What were the uh, reasons and causes uh, for it? And uh, then about um, the results, um, especially for them, because uh, they are practitioners. Uh, what do they have as a result of your collaboration uh, uh, in their own uh, practice? Hmm. Um, this uh, person that I uh, cooperated with, Catherine Ducomonnage, uh, is an old friend. When I was living in India, uh, I lived in India with uh, the Tibetan community for 29 years, and she was a uh, volunteer doctor at the children's village. So I started a friendship with her over 40 years ago. Uh, she had just finished her medical degree. She went on to become a psychiatrist. Uh, we maintained a, a friendship. And she married uh, Ivan Bozumeninaj, the founder of Contextual Therapy. She was his wife. So over the years, uh, while uh, uh, they were married, I... Uh, maintained a friendship with both of them, so I engaged in a lot of conversations with them. I uh, uh, arranged a meeting of uh, uh Naj with His Holiness the Dalai Lama to uh, discuss uh, various issues of psychiatry and so on. And she herself has become a, a, a teacher, world lecturer in contextual therapy besides being a, a therapist and uh, he died about uh, 10 years ago or so and continued our friendship, long-term friendship. And she's uh, also a Buddhist practitioner. But uh, what uh, Dalai Lama was particularly interested in in uh, this whole field of uh, contextual therapy is the introduction of ethics into uh, therapy because usually that's uh, uh, not really taken into consideration the whole idea of fairness in a relationship, and particularly in family therapy, uh, giving uh, equal validity to the uh, perception of each person in the family to the situation, giving everybody equal uh, attention uh, so that uh, you get, um, everybody listens to each other's point of view of what's going on in the family. This is uh, also very much uh, uh, related to the way Buddhists uh, look at it as well. Thank you.